Saturday, October 22nd, 2016, and this is episode 174 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me is, holy cow, it's Mr. Andrew Callett. You can't get rid of me that easy, can you? Nope, you're back. I'm like a bad penny. I just keep coming back. Sweet. Well, it's good to have you back. Thanks, but I hear Martin did a great job filling in for me uh, last show. He did. So thank you to him. He's a good guy, and we really appreciate that. Yes, and yes. And and uh, for those who don't know, I, I disappeared for a little while. I got married and had a honeymoon, and those are sort of time-consuming activities. Yeah, and it, you know, new, new wives tend to frown upon podcasting during the honeymoon. <laughs> or so I have been told. Amongst other things, she's actually standing right over my shoulder right now with a rolling pin. It's kind of awkward, but I guess this is what married life is now. Don't mess up. Uh, and how are you, sir? How's things on your end? Uh, insanely busy. My, uh, my, my, my rear end is the shape of a airplane seat right now. So Mm. yeah, you're, you're never home, but, but you will be in New York next weekend for the Arai security conference as will I. That's right. And by the way, just to uh, remind people, they, they actually have a, I think time's running kind of low, but they have a new program, which I mentioned last week, which is if you buy a ticket, you can get a, a buddy pass, right? So you can get a free buy one, get one free ticket, oh. which, is, which is pretty cool. Um, if, if I had friends, I would I would do that. Yeah, I, I invited a coworker, and uh, so that's pretty nice. awesome. Uh, the one last thing I want to say on that is you and I, Jerry and I, are hosting the Ignite uh, panel Monday the 31st, actually Halloween night. That's right. uh, which is a fun kind of thing. Uh, we've already got a bunch of people lined up. And if you've never been to Ignite thing, it's kind of cool. The concept is you have five minutes, 20 slides, auto advance. And you can talk about almost anything you want, although all of pretty much all of our topics are security focused. But the concept is if you had five minutes to present on whatever you want, but you have to deal with the fact that the slides advance every 15 seconds, it can get kind of crazy. So it's a fun sort of event. And... Um, you know, yep. I think uh, I hopefully folks will come out and have fun with us. So we're hosting, we're emceeing, as it were, that that event, and then we'll be kicking around the conference for the uh, hopefully the rest of the conference. I'm I'm there Sunday through Wednesday. I'm not sure what your schedule uh, is. We'll but... be there too. There's, Excellent. Uh, it's going to be some great talks. It looks like so. Uh, so yeah, I hope hope to see you there. If you are uh, if you're going to be there, look us up. And um, just not if, but just a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employer. Past, present, or future. Right, right. So uh, so our first story, um, actually, I, I, I had to find sound effects for this story. And, and so here we go. Yes, that's right. We have we have the, uh, the dirty cow. I, I'm hiding under my desk. What do I do? Duck and cover. Ah, uh, so uh, so yes. Um, yeah, are the, the cybers attacking? The, what do the, I do? The cybers are attacking. Oh man! There's a there's a there's a new named 
Linux vulnerability, which is super, super, super serious. Uh-huh. It's a, it's a, it's a privilege escalation. I mean, it has its own logo. And by the way, not only does it have its own logo and its own website, it has its own merchandise store nice. where you can buy T-shirts and mugs. Although they're they're all thousands of dollars, so um, in bitcoins. <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, it's a there's nothing spectacular. It, it's a what is interesting about it, by the way, is that it's an 11 year old bug. It was attempted to be patched about 11 years ago by Linus himself, and he apparently had to reverse the patch because it didn't. Uh, the patch broke Linux on. Uh, uh, S390s, the IBM mainframe. And did he scream at himself incoherently on the on the on the email lists that he usually does when somebody breaks something I, with a patch? I, I no, no, he he just he did he did point out he he uh, actually it was interesting because he copied his old you know, the original email from 2005 where where he discussed the fix. So it's been known about the problem is as far as I can tell, it's only been really recently that this has become a, a, you know, a likely attack mechanism because it requires a race condition. And so it requires relatively fast hardware uh, to get the race condition into a, a, a spot where you can actually overwrite files. And and so the, the, right. the whole, the whole deal is that you can, uh, you can use this exploit to, uh, to overwrite files that are owned by root, by root, right? So you can, let's, you know, take something that's uh, owned by root and, put your own code in there so the next time it gets run uh it does whatever you want it to do so it's um you know it's not a it's certainly not a good thing um it's not earth ending no it's not it's not remotely exploitable which in 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 theory at this point in in the first round where i see these being useful is usually in a string attack where a chain attack where somebody finds Hey, you know, one one particular low level attack gets you at least some sort of access, but it's it's a user level access, uh, or now you can go to root, or an insider could leverage this sort of thing, or, or someone moving laterally in the organization can use this sort of thing. So, it's it's weird because we have this concept of well, can it be remotely exploitable? With today's attack chains and and your favorite term, the kill chain, I don't know that that is a great criteria to base your decision on because we now usually start some sort of attack with a stolen or or uh, obtained credential with a, some sort of valid account to begin with yeah it's i think it's it's certainly less severe than something that's remotely exploitable but i, I definitely yeah. think that it's more urgent than a lot of people give local privacy bugs credit for so and I, it's it's incredibly pervasive right i mean this is in Pretty many, much, many, many kernels. <laughs> pretty much every kernel that's in common use today. And, and the challenge is, at least as, as I've seen, is getting folks to patch a kernel usually get some sysadmins to look at you a little sideways if they're not, you know, they don't know the criticality or, you know, this is a pretty, pretty big deal for them to, to take down uh, a Linux box and reboot for a lot of very high, high uptime environments. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I got to thinking that um, this could be a could be a real big problem for the, all of the routers and whatnot that are based off of Linux. But then I got to remembering, you know, you log in as root anyway, right? So 
there's really, yeah, and all, there's really no all the, requirement. All for... those are already controlled by Chinese botnets anyway, so I'm sure they'll be patching it as part of their due diligence and running the botnets. It'll be fine. That's true. You, you know, I wonder. I've often wondered, do those when when you go to hire you know a a outsourced uh you know crime as a service type thing like do you have a vendor management program where you like you know do you you send them like a big spreadsheet and they have to fill out the uh, i think so with with the you know the right to do on-site audits and, right 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 they have to get like yeah. a ssa 16 or probably there's probably like a better business bureau accreditation for crimeware hmm interesting if not we should start that Seems like a you know ripe a, for a possibility. A plus 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 botnet would flood again. Yelp for a <laughs> cybercrime. <laughs> and Angie's list competitor for you know. So anyway, Patrick Crap. Um, I just looked and there's apparently still not a lot of the current like I think Red Hat and CentOS don't have patches yet. So yeah, the fun the, the fun is yet ahead of us. Mm-hmm. So moving on to our next story, and this one comes from softpedia.com, and the title is Hackers Steal Research and User Data from Japanese Nuclear Research Lab. So the deal here is that there's a university in Japan called Toyama Hydrogen, University of Toyama's Hydrogen Isotope Research Center. Easy Um, for you to say. Yeah, seriously. Apparently, uh, you know, professionals would practice that sort of thing before the show. I I did, and it still went badly. (laughs) Still went horribly. So, uh, anyway, um, this, as you might gather from the name of this research center, they they work on uh, hydrogen isotopes, particularly uh, tritium, which is one of the isotopes commonly used in uh, in fusion power generation, but also in uh, nuclear bombs. And they had, uh, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of fifty or 60,000 documents stolen, 59,000 documents stolen. And in the, the thing that, that I wanted to mention here is that you, most likely it's not, uh, you know, it's not some, um, you know, card or card forum group at going after uh, information on IAEA documents, which you know, that was what was the term they were looking for when they when they uh, they stole documents. I'm guessing it wasn't you know some commodity type thing. So it's probably you know dare I say it a nation state. I don't really know, but oh, oh oh I know I know right. But here's the deal, right? They got it through phishing attacks and a very well thought out phishing attack. So the bad guys posed as students and sent emails with uh, basically malicious word documents with questions to the researchers. Right. And those documents had embedded malware. Yep. So I'm looking at that as, you know, that is, this is why we keep saying user awareness training is not sufficient. You could train your users all day long and they're probably going to fall for something like that because it's so normal and expected behavior and it feeds into everything that is expected about that position to be done. And so you've got to back up user awareness training with technical controls. You're never going to stop that sort of social, you know, social engineering. Right. What's also interesting about this attack is they got a ton of personal information about the other researchers, which makes the next round of spear phishing even that much more targeted and successful. Right. Because now they have a now they have kind of a social 
social network, a mapping of a social network between these researchers. Right. So they, they know who knows who. The other thing that I thought was interesting, and you were kind of hinting at this, and I'm just going to go ahead and steal your thunder. Uh, one of the bits of information that got was about Fukushima, and which is the one, the planet that had the big meltdown after the big earthquake and tsunami knocked off the generators and the backup generators and bad stuff happened. I wonder if there's a possibility that this might be some sort of uh, politically motivated WikiLeaks type attack to dig up dirt about Fukushima, because there's plenty of conspiracy theory and weirdness going on around that whole situation so i wonder if that might have motivated it certainly possible i mean i think wikileaks is becoming uh, you know kind of a political tool these days yeah and i I don't i'm not saying wikileaks is behind it but i'm saying something like that yeah agreed yeah agreed um but i i think the, the more interesting thing to me is that here's a here's a relatively high profile you know, group with a lot to lose pretty obviously i assuming pretty sensitive information and they're getting compromised with just plain old phishing yeah yep and and because it works right and you know so 59,000 files that they know of they don't know what the files were they they you know a lot of it was encrypted and sent out it, it seems to me like they probably had some sort of network monitoring that that caught the exfiltration after the fact when they went back and figured it out but not anything that told them what was being stolen but you know i gotta wonder man what kind of freaky japanese tentacle porn files do you think they captured i was waiting for that <laughs> oh boy so uh so anyway i guess the, you the, laugh but i, I did come laugh. on man the, the the point i think the point is that phishing is still you know i, I think phishing is a tool of choice kind of up and down the maturity curve for attackers. Yeah, I agree. It's super, super easy to perpetrate. It's super effective. You know, we're we're just, as an industry, we're not really doing a great job of defending against it. So moving on to our next story, which comes from databreaches.net, and the title is Rainbow Children's Clinic notifies 33,368 patients of a ransomware attack. Now, the re- this is there's nothing particularly incredible about this. There, there apparently was a ransomware attack against this clinic, and I guess they 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 mentioned that there that there's some data that's unrecoverable. What was most interesting to me was that the uh, the clinic notified the Health and Human Services Department of Health and Human Services here in the U.S., which is a requirement for um, uh, uh, breaches of of personal health records. And then also they are uh, notifying each of the individual people and offering uh, identity theft resolution services uh, for a a ransomware attack. Yeah, it's interesting. Now, the the only thing that I can say, and and it's a little little unclear, it's just very briefly mentioned in the, at the very beginning of the article on, on August 3rd, 2016, and this is a quote, Rainbow Children's Clinic was the victim of a hacker who accessed its computer system and then launched a ransomware attack that began encrypting data stored on the clinic servers. So the only thing I could think of is possibly there's a uh, an assumption that because they don't know for certain that the hacker didn't copy the data off, that they're 
that they feel they have to disclose. But otherwise, it's it's the concept of having to disclose to regulators that you got hit with, uh, you know, with with uh, ransomware is it's a little odd. Yeah, I, I concur. It's interesting too because they. Keep in mind, this is a quote coming from their website, so there's a lot of spin on this. But the way they mention it, it could be just something lost in translation, but continuing from the quote you said, they Rainbow Children's Clinic retained an independent computer forensic expert to assist, and through the investigation, the clinic discovered that some patient records have been irretrievably deleted. I wonder if they mean by that that because they were encrypted, they couldn't retrieve them. But to say they were irretrievably deleted is kind of odd. Yeah, I, I I took that to mean they were encrypted and they didn't yeah. want to pay the ransom. Now, now the other fun part is, you know, this is where we get some spin. Rainbow Clinics Children's Clinic takes the security of our patients' information very seriously. Now they of do. Of course you do. Yeah, now they do. And have taken steps to prevent a similar event from occurring in the future, including strengthening security measures, ensuring that its networks and systems are now secure. And by that, they mean not allowing Facebook from right. <laughs> the computer that controls the, the, the health records. Yes. Yeah, it's it. I also, I want to know why they only help rainbow children. That seems very limiting and Ooh. somewhat Ooh. racist. Ooh. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not Just saying. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> I'm not going there. So see, see what getting married does to me. Just <laughs> off the hook. Nice. Just... Nice. So um, yeah, so now now our uh, I guess our, our our last story for this evening, actually I, I've got to pull it out again. Here, there we go. Okay, it's a little little shorter this time. Uh, th- this comes from Brian Krebs' blog. Hopefully everybody, um, well maybe not everybody knows, but you know we we had a ex- existential event happen on the internet here in the U.S. yesterday. And uh, basically, there was a uh, an attack, a major DDoS attack. I, I really don't know how large the attack was, but on a company called Din or Dine or I don't know. I've always pronounced it Dine as in Dine DNS, but I'm not sure that's accurate. See, they could call it Cyberdyne, and you know what that would be, right? Oh, oh man. Yep, yep. Maybe after, maybe after this, they're going to rename themselves Cyberdyne, and, and they're going to come up with maybe some artificial intelligence to help them, um, you know, avoid such things in the future. And they could, I don't know, maybe call it like sky something, right? Are you done? No. Okay. Anyway. Um, so, so Dyn is a major DNS provider, outsourced DNS provider used by a lot of companies such as Twitter, Amazon, Tumblr, Reddit, Spotify, and Netflix. And uh, in, in the ensuing DDoS, a lot of these sites actually became unavailable because most of them use CDN, and CDN requires uh, typically a really low time to live on your DNS records. And so once the once the the, the dying DNS service became unavailable, those records quickly expired. And even though the 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 backend web servers of all these organizations were you know, apparently up and running and not having any problems. Uh, nobody could get to them because DNS was hosed. Yeah, and this is interesting. So for a long time, advice for dealing with DDoS against your hosts was to have a short uh, TTL on your records, on your DNS records, so you could easily swing them to another IP address. Here, that 
kind of backfired on us. Yep. And, uh, you know, ultimately, because we have we we said, OK, we want the flexibility to change an IP address and have that age out very quickly, because for those who, who may not be familiar with DNS, what happens is when you get a record uh, of a resolution, it basically comes with a you can cache this information for X amount of time before you have to go look it up again. And that's configurable. You can you know, I don't even know what the bounds are on it but you know it could be one minute to one day you know it could be a week it could be a month i think i think it goes out pretty far as a cached uh time frame so but what happens is once that cache expires if you can't do a lookup again in general most dns servers don't remember or honor that cache once it's expired they don't say well if i can't get it i'm going to go back and keep this they just lose their minds but if you had a longer time it would keep it. So that was great if your DNS server was down. The downside to all that is if my website is being attacked and it's you know on an IP address and I need to swing it to another IP address, if I have a long cache time on my DNS record, I have to wait for all that time to expire and all of my clients or people out in the world to then pick it up again and figure out the new IP address. So we kind of shot ourselves in the foot uh, on one way that we defend against a DDoS with a different way we defend against a DDoS based on uh, CDN. Yeah, you know, the other the other thing that strikes me too is that we, uh, and this is this is happening at multiple levels, right? We, we are outsourcing more and more of this, of our IT and internet infrastructure to centralized companies. And, and so in this particular case, in one, one particular organization uh, an attack on that organization yielded the, a number of really significant companies being brought down. Yep. And and so it, it kind of goes against the fundamental design principles of the internet itself to consolidate all this stuff into, you know, so for instance, if Twitter and Amazon and Tumblr, they were all running their own DNS servers, this wouldn't have been a possible uh, type of attack. Uh, but at the same time, there's probably some significant benefits they get from doing that outsourcing. Well, the whole point of giving it to somebody like Dyn was to not have this sort of problem in theory happen. And it's interesting because a lot of people, you know, Twitter's been very, very active around this, as you might imagine. And a lot of smart people are talking about, well, why were so many organizations on one DNS provider? Isn't that a bad idea? Well, as you and I have both seen, when you start getting to a certain level in an organization, a certain size in the organization, one of the wonderful, wonderful techniques of executives to do to sort of figure out if they're doing the right thing is to say, hey, what is our competitor doing? Let's go do that too. Yeah, benchmarking. On things that are not core to the organization or not competitive differentiators. And and so it, you know, it's this whole wisdom of crowd things turned on its head because we start then measuring – our organizations against our competitors. I see this all the time in information security too. They ask consultants, "Hey, uh, or or they ask vendors of products, can you can you compare us against our vertical of people our size? You know, how how do we rank up? Because they want to make sure that you know the concept in part is that they sort of can tap into what their competitors." thinking is and maybe shortcut some of their own design decisions and also make sure that not over underspending uh, with limited resources on a certain area. But here is the flip side. You get one really strong organization that becomes the de facto standard for this sort of thing for large organizations and you really concentrate a lot of risk as a result. Now, that being said, I'm sure Dyn is not sitting there 
just taking this. Uh, they will get stronger as a result of this attack uh, and make it less likely for it to happen in the future. But this is an arms race, and it will probably keep going back and forth. Now, I know there's a lot more to this story. I just kind of wanted to ramble along on that for a minute, but I'll, I'll, I'll give it back to you. Sure. So, uh, so, so it, what's what's interesting is that the uh, the source of the attack appears to be the same botnet or or the same botnet tooling that was used to attack Krebs site about a, I guess about a month ago with the uh, you know at the time record six hundred and twenty gigabit uh, DDoS attack and what's what's happened since then is the the, the tooling that was used to attack Krebs' site at the time. A package called um, Mirai, I guess is how you say it, was uh, the, the source code for that was made public, and and so now basically anybody can conceivably use it. Its its function is to uh, you know, kind of scan the internet looking for a, a certain set of vulnerable devices, typically uh, webcams. So. Not not the kind of webcam that's on top of your PC, but you know, think the uh, embedded uh, internet IP cameras, and then also DVRs. And again, not the TiVo kind of DVR, but the kind of DVR that monitors your security cameras. And apparently, uh, there there are a lot of of uh, these devices from a, a couple of particular vendors that have, you know, a listening on. Uh, uh, Telnet and B hard coded or default credentials that are often not uh, not changed by the by the user or they, the user can't change them and then C they're exposed to the internet and so this uh, this this botnet basically is scanning the internet and I see it on my server by the way I'm going to look at my my logs and I actually had to turn off some logging because I was getting so much scan traffic on port twenty three it was really overwhelming. Um, you know, the, this is it's trying to solve, it's trying to propagate itself, and it, it gets a foothold on one of these devices, and now it becomes a bot in in the army. And so, in uh, I guess it was uh, maybe a month or two ago, some assessments were done on the. I don't know if it was in this particular story or not, but I've read some other things that said that there were approximately five hundred and fifteen thousand of these devices accessible from the internet. So, so a couple. So, yeah, just a couple. Which I, I find a fascinating because, at least in the U.S., the vast majority of folks have some sort of NAT device at the edge. Yeah. You know, it's just absolutely fascinating these have that many raw IPv4 addresses on them. Well, the only thing so, – so the only thing I can think of, and I, this is something I have been pondering too, the only thing I can think of is that um, it's it's done intentionally, right, because the – the people who set this up in in whatever context they're setting it up want to be able to access it remotely. So they're they're setting up some sort of static NAT or forwarding it I, from their edge device. I, I'm assuming. I, I mean, I don't know what other. I don't know how else to yeah. explain it. I mean, other, otherwise, there's a whole lot of people that have figured out how to you know cable around their their firewalls. I, <laughs> I suppose. suppose. I don't know. I mean, uh, it's on. But anyway, continue. So, so anyhow, uh, this this particular botnet was apparently the the at least one of the sources, if not the you know the only source of the attack that uh, that took down <clears throat> Din uh, Dine the other day. 
So, um, so now there, as, as you mentioned, there's lots and lots of hand wringing uh, um, going on, and in particular because of the election coming up. There's, a, I think, Bruce Schneier actually made a a comment that maybe this was a a test, right? And you know, I, I'm not, I'm not there, and the reason I'm not there is that once once you run a test like that, I mean, super, certainly this was effective, but now it's on people's radar, right? And so it's it's really not now maybe they. Maybe it happens under completely different circumstances. I, I don't know, but um, you know, I, I would imagine that some percentage of of the infected devices have since been cleaned. I mean, I'm sure there's still you know, maybe way I, I mean, too many. Fundamentally, they have a, a default password you can't change. This is a. I mean, when you get into the type of devices we're talking about, there's a fundamental flaw here, which is that they're put out with a with a default password that cannot be changed in the field. No, I, I agree, but I'm assuming that some there, there are some percentage, and it may be a low percentage. Maybe I'm being overly naive well, here, where the the ISPs were contacted, and you know, did, did the whole you're violating the terms of service, and took them offline. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, I, I guess we'd have to see where the majority of these live, like what you know, what jurisdiction. And there was a there there, there was a, a map that came out earlier today doing an analysis of that, and it's pretty much. Evenly spread across the whole world. Interesting. Well, now there's a lot of people talking about, well, these sorts of devices that can be used to attack other devices should be just be immediately disconnected from the internet, and we should have the ability to do that. That gets into a really slippery slope in my mind. Yeah. I'm, I'm you know, this is a fairly egregious, yeah, I mean, this is an incredibly egregious example of a device that, that clearly, the, the security considerations for the for the this device and its design and development were minimal to non-existent. Uh, there's hard-coded default passwords that are well-known and well-published. Uh, it's, it's a very inexpensive device from a Chinese manufacturer that's that's been on the market. But the problem I see with this sort of thought process is we could just as easily take that criteria of, well, you know, it could be used to attack other devices, therefore they've lost the right to be on the internet. Well, we could have started saying that from the first time two different organizations got on the internet together. And any computing device could potentially be used to attack another computing device. Uh, you know, Windows has critical vulnerabilities patched every month. Are you then going to say that Windows is not allowed on the internet? And Linux and Unix. Uh, it, it's a really slippery slope. And the problem is that as soon as you start saying this device is hostile and we have the right to knock it off. How quickly does that morph into this speech is hostile and we have the right to knock it off? Yeah, well, I think the the, the fundamental premise is, is just wrong-headed because you, I mean, you, there, there's no there's no uniform, you know. It's, so maybe we do that in the U.S. Right, but that's let's say right. let's say twenty percent of the devices, eighty percent well, are outside of the U.S. That's why the UN's taken over the internet. So. Uh, that's yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, so it'll be the UN, the UN's call then. I guess is what you're saying. Right. Absolutely. Got it. Yeah. Well, they just send letters, right? That's what I heard. With blue helmets, it's important to have the blue helmet. That's what I was told. <laughs> um, but this is a this is a tough one, and you know, this actually feels like a debate we've actually had over the last twenty years, of 
you know, not necessarily as, as a distributed denial of service attack like this, but when less technical folks started getting on the internet, there was a lot of hand wringing over. These folks don't know how to secure their servers and run their servers. So when bad guys take over their servers, you know, they shouldn't be allowed to keep, keep them on the internet. Right. And, and I'm not saying the situation hasn't changed appreciably when we're start to start talking about 620 gigabits per second. That's pretty, pretty impressive. Uh, but it's still a really dangerous concept. Do we just ignore it? Of course not. Are we going to have to get better at defending our sites against these sorts of attacks? Yeah. But I really, really shy away from just building this concept of we have the right to knock things off the internet because we don't like what they're doing. Yeah, I, I guess the, 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 the concept for me, and I don't know what the answer is, by the way. On, on, yeah, I, I honestly know. don't either. I, this is a tough problem to solve. There, there's, there's, there just isn't an apparent good answer. I mean, the obvious answer is, well, the, the, the people who use it should do a better job and the people who make it should do a better job, but neither of those seem likely to happen. So, but... The, and there's people talking around this concept of an underwriter's laboratory, which in the U.S. is, in essence, a nonprofit third party that tests electrical devices for safety, in essence. And for the most part, most of the electrical devices sold in the U.S. are underwriter laboratory approved, which gives the, the buying public a sense of safety with that device. So we need a cyber UL. Well, again, we're talking about so many different jurisdictions. And the internet does not respect one's country lines versus another. So even if we said, okay, every device sold in the U.S. had to go through the CyberUL, which established basic security capabilities and you know non-firmware encoded default passwords and crap like that, that doesn't stop China or Bangladesh or South Korea or Japan or Russia or whomever from having devices that don't have that problem. That doesn't, you know, we're tiny compared to the rest of the world. Yep. So I don't know. I don't have a good answer either, but uh, it's a really, really tough problem. I, you know, the one takeaway I have is I think organizations really need to reexamine their DDoS uh, uh, mitigation techniques. I think they're vastly undersized with, with the current. The, the size of DDoSs are increasing rapidly and dramatically. Well, I, I don't. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think the other, the other, the other point I was going to say is that I think we also have to, as is, is this this attack points out, rethink, and and maybe maybe the conclusions aren't aren't that different, right? But rethink the layout of our um, you know, of our enterprise services. And so, in for instance, does it is it acceptable to only rely on one uh, DNS provider? Um, you know, and, and should you run your own, or should you use two, or you know what? That the, there's and the same thing with cloud services and you know I think this kind of opens up the aperture, maybe to things that we really hadn't thought of before. You know, so what if, you know, let's say you host your stuff on Amazon, you know, AWS. You know, what if the attack is against Amazon's, you know, s somehow, some way? I don't entirely know how it would happen as I sit here, but you know, against their underlying infrastructure. You know, and and so that that has an opportunity to, you know, to, to hurt you. But you're you're just a bystander, right? You're you're you weren't the focus of the attack. You're just, but you're yeah. caught up in the in the you know the backsplash, right? 
Yeah, it, it's an interesting challenge, especially with as we shift towards the cloud. I think this is going to happen more and more prevalently. We've only got three really big cloud providers in the U.S. Yeah. So I, I think I would really like to see some hardcore deconstruction of this attack and what the failure was for, for Dyn's infrastructure. What was the bottleneck? What gave in? And see if there's some design takeaways that we can learn from to be more resilient against this type of attack uh, otherwise. Yeah, and I, I do think you, you mentioned we have to collectively rethink our DDoS mitigation strategy with, uh, you know, with, our, with our providers because the attack sizes are getting to be so much larger. The problem is we're artificially constrained by the capacity of our upstream providers, and I'm not even sure that most of our upstream providers can handle a 620 gigabit attack even you know so so yes we can go to our provider and say we need a you know we need a bigger ddos mitigation service but you know there's a i think there's a practical limitation of how much they can give right it's it's a tough problem ddos is a really tough problem to solve and i think a lot of marketing glosses over this and and the problem is how do you know it works until it happens right and it doesn't work it's a really really tough problem to solve and you know i think very few organizations actually test the service with a with a a true ddos attack against themselves yeah and it's, it's this is certainly on the on the larger side it's certainly difficult to test in the in the higher in the higher bandwidths I do think that in general, I, you know, it's, I don't have any data to back this up, but I strongly suspect that DDoSes follow kind of a power law distribution where, you know, you have a, a whole bunch of really small ones and then you have less that are, you know, medium and then you have a few of these really, really large ones. But I think what we're seeing is that that scale is kind of sliding up where you're, you know, the, 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 the size of the ones at the floor are going up and the size of the ones at the top are, are going up. Everything's kind of moving, moving up. And a lot of this is because, you know, there's, there's more and more devices that are being found that, that can participate. Uh, and then also the, the amount of bandwidth that each of these devices are connected to is continuing to increase. And so those are, those are, I think the, you know, the two factors that are happening independent and, and the whole system isn't being kept in lockstep. No, and I, I think the amount of devices being added to, to the internet is far exceeding our ability to learn how to secure them. I think there's far more insecure devices being added and we are not collectively as internet you know, citizens getting better at this. We're getting worse. That's why we need the cyber county internet uh, inspector. You know, like the like the building inspector, yeah. right, right, and he also inspects passwords for for strength. The county sure. password inspector, absolutely, they could do the same he's, thing. Yeah, he's got a lot of inspecting to do. That's right. So anyhow, um, I I need to uh, go and pack for my the next leg of my trip. So thanks again, everybody, for listening. And uh, Andy's playing with his uh, his new cat. So uh, that sounds wrong. Yeah. What's it, it's uh, Caesar? No, not Caesar's the other no, one. No, that's that? Fiona. Fiona. She's she's my one-year-old torty girl. Fiona, she just kind of Fiona's came beautiful. to visit. Torties are, are torty cats are just awesome. She's now climbing up the cat tree in my office. 
So anyhow, um, thank you very much for listening. Thanks to everybody who has donated to our Patreon campaign. Uh, if you want to find links to the stories we talked about tonight, you can go to our website at www.defensivesecurity.org and look at the show notes and you'll, you'll find those links. You can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kell on Twitter at Lurg. You can follow me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And uh, with that, we'll talk again. Um, we'll probably record something while we're out at uh, uh, New York. and then uh, yeah, yeah, hopefully. We have time. Yeah. But I think both of our lives should calm down a little bit after after this uh, this month. Yes. We will, we will get back on a schedule. So thanks yeah. for your patience, and we'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Yeah, yeah.